Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. The parable for today is in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Now, this is another one that we like the parable of the sower. These are my favorite because I don't have to guess what they mean because Jesus actually explains them. And Jesus is going to explain this parable, but there's something fascinating about his explanation that we're going to get into in a second. So 24 through 30 is the parable, and then he explains the parable. Now, there's actually a break. There's actually other parables in between the parable and the explanation. And the reason for that is this. What happens is, Jesus shares this parable. Now, where is he? Who remembers? Where is he as he's sharing these parables? He's on a boat. Why is he on a boat? Because the crowd was too big and too aggressive, basically. They were pushing in on him, so he steps out on a boat to give himself a little bit of distance and also to allow for the more crowd, more people, get as close as they can, but without actually sort of uh, crowding him and crushing him. So he's standing in the boat, and he's preaching these parables to a large crowd. Well, it says, after he preaches about three more parables, it says he goes inside the house and talks just to the apostles. So it's like he speaks to the crowds, and then he's kind of done, and then the apostles go off. But Jesus isn't done giving parables. He's just done giving parables to the whole group. And in that moment, so he tells his parables, and then when he goes into the house, the first thing the apostles do is they ask him about this parable we're about to read. So the first thing he does when he's alone with them is explain this parable. We're going to skip the parables in between tonight because we want to talk about this parable. So we're going to read the parable, we're going to read the explanation, the next week we'll come back to the verses we skipped. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So let's go. Here's what he says. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. He's kind of on a roll. Remember last week's parable was also about someone sowing seed. But some of the seed didn't take, and some of the seed took really well, and some of the seed kind of looked like it was going to be good, and then went away. So he's, he's kind of using the same basic setup. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. One thing that's important to remember about parables is they often are a little absurd. I mean, this isn't going to happen, right? <laughs> I mean, even if you have an enemy, the thought that, that they would think this was their great dastardly plan would be to take the time to plant weeds and wait for the weeds to pop up, and that's somehow going to be their grand plan. That's a very patient supervillain, um, as all supervillains are. So it's a, it's a little absurd, right? If we're not supposed to see this actually as likely, but there is a point here that he's making. So this is what he says. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. By the way, just for the record, there's all sorts of commentaries, if you read commentaries on this, which will explain to you, and I have no doubt it's true, that in Israel, you can actually plant wheat, and there's a specific kind of wheat which looks exactly like wheat. Okay? So there you go, now you know something that you and I both didn't know a week ago. Alright? It's not that important. Uh, this, the story, the parable, doesn't have to be exact. It just happens there is something here that could be the case. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the wheat also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? I like that. It's your fault. Why did you sow these weeds in your field? Didn't you sow good seed in the field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. 
The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? Reasonable question. No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bubbles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. So this is where it all starts. This is the, the beginning. This is the parable itself. You have someone plant some seed, an enemy comes along, plants wheat, weeds instead. The servants come to the master and say, did you plant these? And he says, of course not. That was done by someone who wants to destroy our garden, our, our wheat, our produce. And they say very reasonably, remember this, it is very reasonable. They say, should we not pull up the weeds? And he says, very strangely, no. <laughs> Let's let the weeds flourish. Let's let them grow. Now he tells us why, and he does give us assurance that eventually it'll be sorted out. This moment is the crux of the parable. This is the point in the parable where everybody listening goes, what is happening? What is, this is the moment where they have to think. And Jesus is trying to make a point that he wants them to, to think. He's encouraging their participation in the story. Because this doesn't happen. Enemies don't plant weeds. <laughs> All right. So that's the story. Well, they left the crowd and went into the house. So again, we skipped some, some verses here. We skipped some other parables. We'll come back to those. But here's the explanation. They left the crowd and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. This goes to show you that it is a weird story. They're sort of we don't really know exactly what you're telling us here. We're trying. We are those that you say are trying, and we're still confused. Can you just explain it to us? Because you've already told us, by the way, that you will do that for us, because you know that we're already trying. Okay. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. Now, this is interesting, and I bring this up because it'll come up in a later parable. Why, I don't think that everything has to have an exact match, and every parable, every symbol doesn't have to be the same. It is worth noting that in both of the last two parables, the Son of Man is the sower. He is the one who is, owns the field. Right? He is the one producing. He's told that thought. We'll come back to that in a couple weeks. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. Fair enough. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. But Jesus has given a really complete one-to-one symbol connection. He has never done this in a parable before. Even the seed and the sower wasn't quite like this. He goes on. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun, of the king, sun in the kingdom of their father, and then he says that same weird phrase that he said before, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is an interesting thing to say to the apostles, because what he's saying to them, as he said to the crowds, is, even though I just gave you the answer, you still have to work with this. You're going to need to think about this. There's something really important here that you don't know that I just told you, and I don't want you to miss it. Well, what's interesting is the thing he emphasized in the explanation, this whole point about judgment at the end of time, that's not new information. In fact, that's the part of the parable they probably already understood. That's the part he emphasizes in his explanation because he, he knows they need it as an assurance. Because the part they didn't understand is troubling to them. And that is what I want us to kind of see 
that. So let's walk through it a little bit, what we know, what we understand. First of all, symbol, there's weeds, and there's wheat. And Jesus says, the weeds are those of the enemy. He doesn't call them the enemy, by the way, just to be clear of that. He says they're those that the enemy has sowed, but he doesn't call them the enemy. The weeds aren't the enemy, there's weeds. But he says there's weeds and there's weeds. And they're both in the same field. All right? He makes a distinction. He says there's two kinds of people that are all growing in this same field. But here's the problem about this, right? What does this mean? How does it happen? How do we end up? We know an enemy does it, but how do we end up with two different kinds of things growing in the same field? What does it mean that, that God is saying within the kingdom of heaven you're going to have people from two different places? I want to remind you one thing it does not mean. It doesn't mean that the weeds are those who are only. See, we have to be clear about that. Because Jesus has already said everyone is one. So it isn't that the weeds are, he's making a distinction saying there's those we want in the kingdom of heaven and those we want, don't want in the kingdom of heaven and we'll separate them. It's not that. Everyone is one. So who are the weeds? So if the weeds aren't those who want to be there, but just aren't welcome, which is how we often think of ourselves. We're weeds in the kingdom of heaven, right? We, we want to be here. We want to be part of the community. But oftentimes we don't feel like we quite belong. We feel like we're the ones that should be rooted out. We're hoping nobody figures it out. We're doing our best to look like the weeds. Because deep down we know we're a weed. And we read this parable, and maybe that's what we think. That God is saying, you're right. The weeds and weeds look very similar, but I know some of you are not wanted. I'll get rid of you. But that can't be because the previous parable told us that can't be. So if the weeds are not those who aren't who want to be there but aren't wanted by God, if everyone is wanted, then let's remember our second lesson that we've seen, which is not that everyone wants it, and God forces no one. See, the kingdom of heaven, as we talked about last week, the kingdom of heaven, everyone is welcome, but weirdly some people don't want it. And God's kingdom is unlike any other kingdom in that he is not a conquering hero in the sense that he conquers and then takes captives. He's a conquering hero in the sense that he vanquishes the enemy and then invites the prisoners of the enemy to come along. But that there are some prisoners that choose to remain prisoners. There's some prisoners that don't want it. And I think that what we're finding out here is that the weeds are those who don't want it. It's not those who aren't wanted. So if you want it but feel like you don't belong, you're not a weed, you're a piece of wheat, and you're just confused about that. But if you're somebody who doesn't want to serve God, but for whatever reason you still engage yourself in the community, then that would be it. It really, it comes down to this. This is the point that you see, that the distinction between weed and wheat isn't a distinction between worthy humans and unworthy humans. Because what God often tells us about the kingdom of heaven is that left or right devices, none of us are worthy. But that by Christ, all of us are worthy. He wants all of us. So it's not that. It's not a distinction between worthy and unworthy humans. It's a distinction between those who are part of the kingdom of heaven and those who aren't. And the only reason anyone is not is they don't want to be. It comes down to this. This is a thing that is true of scripture, which is sometimes hard for us to grasp comes back to a phrase that Jesus says, which is really a strong phrase. Unfortunately, sometimes as humans, we repeat this phrase, but it's never as true of us as it is of Jesus, and we need to be clear about it. What Jesus said is, you're either for me or against me. When we say that, it's really not true. 
I mean, people can be kind of neutral about you. It's just the way it is. They could be against some things you're for and for some things you're for. It's just a, a hard line that we draw that makes no sense. But for Jesus, he's the king of the entire universe. And so in Jesus' mind and in God's mind, there really are two and only two kingdoms that exist. There's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of not God. There's the kingdom of heaven, and there's the kingdom of the earth. And there may look to be a lot of different kingdoms that are not God, and a lot of different kingdoms that are worldly kingdoms, but in God's economy, they're really all the same. They're just the kingdom of not God. Because for God, he is the king of the universe, and it really just comes down to this. You either recognize that God is the king or you don't. And if you don't want to be in the kingdom of God, that means that you don't want to recognize God is the king. And being the God that he is, he will not force himself to be your king, but that means ultimately you can't be in the kingdom if that's your choice. So the weeds and the weed are distinguished by those who respond to the king and those who don't. Please hear me clearly. Again, our brains always go to our own word. And so what you tend to do when I say this, or at least I tend to do, and some of you may tend to do, is you tend to say, right, so this is distinguished between those who obey the king well and those who don't obey the king well. And that is not what I'm saying. Because there may be those who acknowledge God as king at the same time they acknowledge their own rebellion. There may be those who acknowledge God as king at the same time they recognize that we do not serve the king as well as he deserves to be served. In fact, probably those who are most devoted and, and loyal to the king recognize that more than anyone. That he is worthy of so much more than we are capable of giving. The weeds are not those who are trying and not making it. The weeds are those who have said, I do not want to serve God. And even as Jesus describes them, what does he say? They are not the people of the kingdom. They are the people of the end. They are people who serve not God. In this case, specifically the devil which is a mouthful and comes with a whole Hollywood baggage for all of us. You know what I mean by Hollywood baggage. We've seen it all in movies. Probably none of it's very close, would be my guess. But the truth is, as far as I know, it could be exactly right on, because scripture tells us very no. But we do know this. We know that people choose. That Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. And so within this kingdom, we have the weeds, which are those who don't want the kingdom. The weird part about this story is they don't want the kingdom. That would be simple, right, if the weeds were growing in a different field, right? I mean, you got the wheat in one field, that's the kingdom of heaven. Then you got the weeds in Satan's field, and that's a whole different thing. Well, that's super easy. Then it's really easy for the servants to go, those are the weeds and those are the wheat. No problem, we'll let the weeds flourish over there. But in this story, what's weird is the weeds are those who don't want the kingdom and yet are part of the community. Now, you can ask, why on earth would they be part of the community? And to be honest, there's probably no answers. Maybe they're curious. Maybe some of them want to see the kingdom of heaven as a worthwhile place to be. I realize you're stretching the, the analogy at this point because weeds can't become weeds. But in the reality, that's what happens every day. The people who are not of the kingdom become people of the kingdom. The people who are not my people since God become my people. That's not what this parable is about. Sometimes we have people in the community because they're curious. Sometimes, as Jesus puts it, this is hard for us to fathom. I think it's true. 
Sometimes they really wanted to sway. A weed exists, let's be honest, you live in New Mexico, you know this. A weed exists to destroy all good things. And I think that he is saying that there are those that the devil sows within the community with the intention of disrupting, causing division, causing harm, telling lies, of deceiving people. It's a scary, scary thought. Remember when I said that part of the parable is troubling to the apostles. This is only the beginning part of what's troubling to them, but I want you to be troubled by this. Because there's a reaction that you're going to feel that the apostles feel. So hear me again. Jesus is saying there are people within the community of faith who are there to destroy the community of faith. So if that's true, what's your response to that? Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. Well, why does it make you uncomfortable? Does it make you suspicious of those around you? Like that's uncomfortable? Does it make you start thinking, oh, my goodness, I need to be more attentive. There's all sorts of wolf in sheep's clothing. Because if that's the way you're responding, that's a very normal response. I just want to affirm the normality. Or maybe your response is you want to protect the purity of the community. You think, well, I need to make sure that this doesn't happen because we don't want the community destroyed. And let me stress again, it's a very normal response. Because you care about the community. Or maybe it makes you uncomfortable because you're afraid, again, deep down that you're And you're afraid that someone's going to come along and root you out. And you kind of know they should. That also is a pretty normal response. But all these normal responses are what this parable is about. And it's to tell them that they're the wrong responses. It seems to make sense that what we should do is root out the impurities. It seems to make sense that what we should do is keep our eyes open and try to determine who's weak and who's weak and take care of it. And yet this is the only thing that the parable itself tells us we must not do. How weird is a parable that says, there are weak among you, now ignore them. <laughs> that's a weird parable. And I think that's what the apostles were troubled by. Because the Israelites have been taught all of their history to maintain purity, to get rid of those, in a sense, that are not pure. So when they come to him, they say, can you explain it to us? And what's fascinating is that in his explanation, Jesus doesn't emphasize what the parable emphasizes. See, Jesus emphasizes that, that he will come and he will separate the weeds and the wheat, but that is sort of just an afterthought of the parable. The main point of the parable is something else entirely. But I think the reason that Jesus emphasizes what he does is because he knows that that's what they were troubled by. They were unable to accept the message of the parable because they needed first to know that God would sort it all out. They needed to know that the weeds would not truly destroy anything. They needed to know that Jesus would be able to keep it all pure. Because until they knew that, they couldn't hear the real point of the parable, which is this. Weeding is not your job. It's not your job. And guess what? It's not even my job. I'm a pastor. It's not my job. My job is not to look out in the community. It's not to look around the church. It's not to look among the Christians and say, who belongs here and who doesn't? That's not my job. And why does Jesus tell them it's not their job? Why does the sower say to his servants, don't 
full of the weeds. What does he say? Does anybody remember? Because you can't tell the difference. Because you are unable to know. Because you think you know, but you're going to pull up the wheat. You're going to destroy the good with the bad. We are not to lead our community. We are not to purify it. We are not to make it all right. We are not to get rid of those stray people because we're terrible at determining who those people are. Now, I think the implications of this are huge. And I think they're so important for us, just as they were for those early believers. Because many of us in the church world have come to believe that our job, as the Israelites believed, is to do precisely that is to find those weeds and pull them out. But I think the history of the American church, you visit some Twitter feeds, Facebook feeds, you read a few books, one of the things you'll discover is we've damaged a lot of people in trying to do that. We've come awfully close to destroying a lot of people. And the devil is. Then the message has got all sorted out. We have done incredible damage, pulling on weeds and meat and not being clear about which was which. He wants them to rely on the judgment of Jesus at the end so that they can relax about weeding now. But God wants us to do the same. He wants us to understand the harvesters, the angels. Jesus says very directly, they're angels. They will not mess up. It says very directly, the harvesters will take care of it. It'll be the end. Maybe there's something about harvest time that makes the wheat easier to tell from the weeds. It doesn't matter. Jesus knows. <laughs> he can see the hearts. <laughs> I think the implications of this, I really, I want you to think about this. Like Jesus wanted the apostles to think about this. Like he wanted the big group to think about this. I really want you to think about this because I think the implications are big. I think we may not realize how important they are. So, for example, let's start by recognizing that the truth is we all like to make the identification of who's we and who's we. And not just in the church. It's what we do in groups. It's what anybody does. Republicans do it. Democrats do it. The Ups Club does it. You get any group together, and part of their job is to identify who belongs and who doesn't. We even have a name for it. We call them gatekeepers, right? Every group has gatekeepers. And the gatekeepers see their job as finding out who belongs in this group and who doesn't and doing their best to purify it. We like to do it. We like to do it because it makes us feel better about our own deep down questions about our own weedness. Right? If we can identify other people as weed, this is different between weed and weeds, I guess. If we can identify other people as weeds in a way that we aren't, we can feel better. And so it's what we do in groups. We really do it. We're just, it's, it's like instinct. It's like human nature. We identify who belongs and who doesn't. So that's hard. Because Jesus says, in the church of all places, where it seems really important, stop. Just stop. And, and for who you are, you know, everybody's different. You know, maybe your identifications are very soft. You know, maybe you're not running around uprooting the weeds, but maybe you're tying a ribbon on, just so everybody knows they're a weed. You know, our identifications, they may be really firm, 
or they may really stop. But the truth is, we all carry in our minds a picture of who, who really belongs and who doesn't. It's really interesting. We're in an interesting historical moment, I think, when it comes to politics and religion. And I think that for years, conservatives, political conservatives, decided that progressives were the weeds in the church. They tried to move them out. But what's weird, for all you progressives out there listening, and there's a lot of you in this room and out there both, please hear me. What I'm watching right now is progressives increasingly do the exact same thing. Find churches which are progressive, where people think like they think, and then post on Facebook things which say, if you were really a Christian, you would think the way we think. This really transcends political ideologies, racial categories, personalities, economic levels. It is our tendency to want to identify the weeds and kick them out. It's interesting, and I will say this lightly and quickly, but isn't it weird how masks became an identifier for so many people on both sides of the debate about who was really a Christian. Is that weird? Masks. I don't see anything about masks in scripture anyway. I just don't. Isn't it weird that we have people who some saw that wearing a mask was a sign of, of faithless fear? And they said essentially, you don't belong here. And isn't it weird that some saw not wearing a mask as a sign of selfish lack of love? And they said, you don't belong here? See, both of these things may have existed. There may have been people who were faithless and fearful and only wore masks for that reason. And there may have been those who chose not to wear masks because they were selfish and unloving. But you understand, there also may be a million reasons why people didn't, didn't wear masks. And you and I can't tell. We don't know. What amazes me is that such a weird, clearly superficial thing became a way that we decided we could read the hearts of people. Which I think goes back to Jesus' point. We should not be pulling weeds. We're bad at it. We don't know. So, how do we avoid weeds? This is what I'm going to wrap up with. How do we avoid it? If it's kind of our nature, if it's kind of a temptation, and i got to tell you, I, I think this is why I was thinking about it. I think it is. If you're sitting here saying, you never have wanted to weed, I just think you're wrong. I'm just going to say that. Now, am I judging your heart when I say that? I suppose so. But just put it in the category of I'm also bad at it. <laughs> but I can tell you, from 35 years as a pastor, I've got a vantage point to watch people justify all sorts of things. And the saddest thing of all is the way we justify hate. And the way we justify hate is by calling them weeds. So here's some things I think we can do. Here's how I think we can move forward. Number one, stop assuming you know motivations. It's a really simple thing, and yet I bet we do it numerous times a day. Somebody does something, and we know why they do it. Why? Well, because maybe that's why we would have done it. But guess what? You're not them. All you've done is identify your own bad motivations. <laughs> In fact, Paul seems to indicate that when we judge people, that's often what we're doing. We're actually revealing our own problems because we judge people with what we ourselves do. Just stop assuming motivation. Stop assuming that you know them. In fact, I'd like to go further 
I'd like to say, let's start assuming that you don't know the motivations. Let's go the other direction. Let's just assume at every moment you're probably wrong about someone's motivations. Can we start there? If it turns out pleasantly, surprisingly, you were right, great. Fluke. Perfect. But can we start by assuming you don't know that whatever you think the motivation is of that person is wrong? See, people are just far too complex. We give ourselves a great deal of complexity. We acknowledge it. We say, people don't understand. You know, if they feel it with motivation, we're like, yeah, but there's this and this and this. There's so many things. But we understand the wounds we face, the traumas we felt, the, the things we've learned, the things we're trying to learn, the joys we have, the personality we have, the people we've encountered. All of these complexities go in to make our motivations a mess. Let's be honest. Don't you wrestle with your own motivations? What makes you think that if other people can't even figure out their own motivations, that you, by looking at them, just magically know? Just stop it. Stop it. If you're on Facebook, stop it. If you're on Zoom, stop it. If you're here, you can keep going. No, stop it. People are so complicated. We tend to paint them as two-dimensional figures. But let's, let's be honest. These are some things I've run into over the last year driving nuts. I happen to be pro-life. If you want to know why I'm pro-life, I'll be happy to share my convictions with you about that. But here's one thing I've learned. I've learned that maybe that pro-life gal isn't really trying to oppress women, even though so many people think that's the only reason someone would be pro-life. And I've also learned that maybe that pro-choice guy doesn't really want to kill babies even though that's the only reason that so many people assume they make that choice. Is it possible that the person who wants to abolish the police and the person who wants to support them are both caring, loving people who are trying to figure out how to protect all people in the middle of a broken and racist world? That doesn't mean empathy is equally right. It does mean the motivations may be a lot closer to yours than you thought. Don't assume. People are not two-dimensional characters who only exist to support your narrative of your own righteousness. I like that phrase. I'm going to say it again. People are not two-dimensional characters who exist only to support your narrative of your own righteousness. We sometimes think that God writes people into our story so we're more clearly the hero. But could it often be that God writes these people into your story not to affirm your self-righteousness but to challenge it? Could it be that he writes people in your story who annoy you and bug you and scare you because God wants you, instead of dismissing opposing ideas and differences, to be challenged by them? To dig deeper in your own motivations? And the easiest way to avoid being challenged and avoid learning anything at all is to assume the other person has evil intent and is aloof. In fact, I think this is the bottom line. Not only should we stop assuming we know people's motivations, I want to say this. Start assuming positive intent in everybody you meet. And if that makes you super uncomfortable, then we're on the right track. Start assuming positive intent from everyone you meet. If you need a scriptural justification from that, and it's fair that you would want one, I would point to 1 Corinthians 13, among other verses. But 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love hopes all things and believes all things. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 13 about loving each other, I think it means in other people. I think it means that you believe 
the possible goodness in that person. And you hope in the possible goodness in that person. And you start by assuming positive intentions. It means we not only need to be humble about our ability to read the hearts and minds of people, which we cannot do. Seriously. Look, I'm a pretty empathetic person. And I'm pretty savvy. And I've hung out with a lot of people. And I was a counselor for many, many years. And I've been a pastor for more years than that. And I think I'm pretty good at reading the hearts and minds of people, except I'm terrible. So are you. <laughs> so not only does it mean being humble about our ability to do that, but it goes further and it means begin, begin with the assumption that their intent is good. And I know that's very hard, and I know why. I know it's because some people are not good. In fact, from the scripture, none of them are. None of us are. That doesn't mean that every single act that anybody does is for your detriment. And to start living life assuming evil intent in everybody is to be looking for all those weeds to pull out of your circle. Now, is there ever a moment to believe in bad intent? Yes. 100%. But can we not start there? Can we let them prove it to us. Let them prove it to us. Sometimes people will prove to you their bad intent. And when they do, I'm not saying be stupid. I'm not saying continue to think they have positive intent, even though they told you to your face they hate you and they want to destroy you. Or they've shown it to you by doing it to you over and over. I, I understand that. But can we start by assuming positive intent rather than starting by assuming you know, Scripture encourages that. Assume that where they're doing comes from a good place rather than a bad one. Assume that they believe in their own righteous intent as surely as you believe in yours. Do you understand that we do that all the time? We're like, well, I know I did the wrong thing, but I meant to do the wrong thing. Well, when someone else does the wrong thing, we say what? Well, they meant to do the wrong thing. There's no other explanation for it. But in their mind, they're saying the same thing. Meant to do the right thing. I know it's wrong. Which is good. That could So start assuming positive intent. I think another thing I want to say is learn to live with difference in the room. I stole this phrase. I'll just say this outright. Why are accusing me of this? I just don't remember where I stole it from. I can't give credit. But I do remember hearing somebody say this. I think it was on a podcast. And I love the phrase and the way they said it. And so I want to pass it on to you and say, somebody out there smarter than I am, and said, learn to live with the difference in the room. See, we don't like living with difference in the room. One of the reasons that mega churches became so big in the 70s was because of suburbs. And what happened in suburbs is people found they could get, gather together with people who thought like they thought. And then they discovered they could create churches with people who thought like they thought. It's, a, again, a sort of natural human habit. I'm not even sure I want to say that's impossible, you shouldn't do that, or anything. But I do want to say, as time goes forward, we get better and better at not living with difference in the room by just making sure the room only contains people who are like us. And you do see the seeds of racism, right? You see the seeds of misogyny, right? You see the seeds of, of all sorts of bigotry. It's not bad that you may be initially more comfortable with people like you but it is wrong to refuse to live with difference in the room. 
learn to live with difference in the room. Because the truth is, it's our own discomfort, more than anything, I think, that leads us to try to expel the unrighteous. It's not more than it is a real sense of righteousness or justice. We want to push people out of our circle, not because they're weeds, but because they're different. And their difference challenges us. It is my delight and my goal. Let me put it in the right order. It is my goal to have a church which is truly diverse, where difference exists in all of our rooms. It is my delight. We made a lot of progress towards that. Because it's hard. Because without intention, it doesn't happen. I'm preaching it myself as much as all of you at this moment. This whole preaching, this whole teaching. I've already mentioned at my notes here, it says, let me be pastoral honest with you for a moment. I don't even know what that means. I wrote that phrase, and I'm like, that's a dumb phrase. But I think what I was going to do is share what I've already shared. But as a pastor, I have a vantage point where I watch people justify hate. Good people justify hate because they just don't want the difference in the world. It's uncomfortable. Now, see, I see this because I watch people, I think it's as a pastor, people feel like they have to justify their actions to you, right? It's just one of those things. Uh, when I'm talking with people and they don't know my job, and then they ask what to do for a living, I always have this moment where I have to choose. Do I say I work for Apple, which is true, or do I say I'm a pastor, which is also true? And I know that I get different responses, right? And a lot of times if I happen to say I'm a pastor, or if it seems appropriate or whatever, if I say I'm a pastor, almost immediately I watch their eyes and their face, and I know what's going on in their brain, because it happens every time, and what's going on in their brain is they're replaying the entire conversation we had and trying to figure out if they said anything embarrassing to a pastor. Immediately they'll apologize for their language. Or they'll apologize for the movie that they were talking to me about, which I saw also, but they still felt weird about it. And so when you're talking to people who know you're a pastor, sometimes they feel like they have to justify their actions. The movie they watched, the the, the uh, you know the behavior that they did, why they did this or that. They do spank their kids. They don't spank their kids. They just feel. And, and here's one thing I want to say, just as a side note. I am obligated as much as you are not to weep. And I want you to know, I actually do take that to heart. And I do not walk around talking to people in the church looking for where they're not like me and looking to put them out. I don't make those judgments. I try really hard not to make those judgments. I do try to have positive intent with everybody I speak with. So if it helps, I would love for everybody to be more comfortable. But I know it's Be assured, I almost always assume the best about your actions. You can probably ask my wife or those closest to me, and they'll tell you that is my habit. But having said that, I get a front row seat to the more troubling aspects. And I do watch people justify hate and isolation and the lack of generosity in their spirit. People that I know can be very loving. I watch them justify not being that way by calling people weeds, by determining that they don't care. A critical, critical, bitter spirit often comes back simply to the fact that we don't like the difference. We're not really concerned about their righteousness. We're not really concerned about the marooning community. They're, we're worried about the marooning community for us. It's far easier to judge people who don't understand than people who do. I want you to think about this. As you think about learning to live with the difference in the room, I really I want you to think about this verse maybe in a different way. This is Psalm 139, 13 through 14. And it says this, 
For you created my inmost being. This is David speaking to God. And he says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's room. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Would you like to believe that about yourself? I want you to believe that about yourself. But you know what is completely unfair? To believe that it is only true about yourself. I mean, if we're going to take it for ourselves, doesn't it have to be true of the people we can't stand as well? <laughs> Don't they also have to be wonderful? I want you to think about the word wonderful. God really struck me with this several years ago, and I thought, oh, that's really cool, because it really helped change the way I thought about people. Think about the word wonderful for a moment. We think wonderful means delightful, but it doesn't. It's a different word. I would love it if all people were delightful, but let's be honest. They're not, and I'm not always delightful. But think about the word wonderful. What does it mean? It means produces wonder. Something that's wonderful makes you wonder about it. Have you ever looked at someone who was very different from you and in all the annoyance and in all the frustration and all the irritation, you also have this thought? I wonder why they do that. I wonder what makes them tick. There is something about that difference which can be kind of delightful in that sense of wonder if we'll let it. If we can recognize that, man, that person is like me in a lot of ways and completely different in this way, that's crazy and wonderful. I mean, when you see two animals, you know, duckbill platypus. When you see a duckbill platypus, who's offended by the weirdness of it? I'm not. I think it's kind of cool. A jellyfish. A jellyfish is the strangest thing. No mind, no heart, but it's not a plant. I don't get it. But I'm not offended by that. I'm not like, you're so stupid, you don't have a brain, it's so stupid. But I'm not like, I'm not like offended by that difference. Somehow, in the animal kingdom, we're able to look at it and go, it's not wonderful that God did this, and God did that, and God did the other. When we encounter people who are as radically different, and I get it, sometimes they are wrong. Please hear me, I'm not saying people are always thinking the right things. Neither are you. And so when you're thinking one way and they're thinking one way, can we pause for a moment and instead of being threatened by it, can we gradually begin to learn to know? Can we begin to learn, even if we think that they are wrong and there is something wicked in it, can we still wonder at the fact they can see it so differently than we do? Take a moment to contemplate rather than assume that they're just a weed and that's the answer. Think. Now maybe you know. Maybe this is not an issue for you. I've spoken as if it is, and if it's not, that's okay. But, but it is for almost everybody in the world. <laughs> it's just my guess. My guess. But I know it's for me, and I know that my church history hasn't always been good at preventing this. When I say my church history, I just have to include when I was a pastor as well. So first I want to say, this is it. Those of you who have been with me for a long time, I apologize if this sounds like a 180. <laughs> I don't think it is, but it could sound like it. And I apologize if at any point I treat you like it.
That's on you. That's not on me. That's not on me. Our tradition has led to the idea that part of our job is to read. I think we have to back up. I get the intent. I think the response, the desire for purity, the desire for protection is admirable. But Jesus says, I will take care of them. I'll take care of them. Let them flourish. Not just exist. He says, flourish. Let them grow side by side with the leaf. The reality is, it's not in this parable, is that we do become rich. In the kingdom of heaven, those who don't want to be sometimes decide they do want to be. And when that happens, it's a glory to God. And when we're busy weeding them, not only do we damage the weed, but we don't get to weed that opportunity. God will sort it out at the end. It's not your problem. It's not my problem. So these are the lessons we've learned so far. Everyone is wanted in the kingdom of heaven. I hope you can see how that and this last lesson really go together a lot. Because everyone's not wanted by me. Everyone's not wanted by you. <laughs> we want to remove people. We want to shrink the circle. We want to make our community more pure. But the problem is our definition of pure always, always, no matter our intentions, our definition of pure will always come back to those who are most like us. That's good. But everyone is wanted in the kingdom of heaven. But yeah, not everyone wants it. And so sometimes in the community, you may end up with people who are not here to serve God. And they don't even want to want to want to want to serve God. They may be here for a million reasons. There may even be people who are here to destroy our community. I actually don't, I, I don't really think of anybody in our community as doing this. But I'm just saying, it's possible. There are people who are here to destroy the community. People are here to destroy the church. What God says about that is, it's okay. Reading is not your job. I think there's actually a lot of people in that. Because I think as I was growing up as a pastor, I had so much anguish at times over deciding whether someone was a reader. Really, just like, is this across the line? Is this a weed wheat crossing, or is this just, they're still weed, but they're immature? You know, there's just so much trying to figure it out. And this kind of is like, oh, praise God, I don't have to worry about it. We just treat everybody who's in the community the way we should treat everybody in the community. And they'll either like it or not, and they'll stay here, they'll go. And if we're truly loving each other and trusting God, I think we'll be quite protected. Really do. This is not the last lesson. More lessons. But this is the third one. This is the third one. And thank you guys for hanging out. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.